Welcome back to the 164th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including two talking about colleges, one tackling free speech on campus, the other one talking about the underfunding of HBCUs, as well as an interesting article talking about Chicago's new public grocery store and the ramifications it will have. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So is the U.S. college system due for a remodel? You know, if you had the power, if you were the ultimate dictator of the United States, how would you restructure things? Would college be free? Would there be more subsidies? Would there be less subsidies? Would the government stop doing student loan programs? Tell me what your ideal system would be, because I think we are on the edge of it changing a little bit, especially with demographics changing, and college is probably going to have to shut down because less people, not only are our demographics, you know, kind of slowing down in growth, but also less kids at that age are wanting to go to college. So we're going to see a a shift in demographics, which may cause a shift in the system. But with all that said, let's jump into our first story, which comes from the Washington Examiner. The left's thought police are destroying America's colleges. Now, if you pay any attention to the debate about colleges or the debate about thought police, (laughs) which I don't think is that fervent, but controlling the thought of young people or just people in general through social media, through you know harsh social standards or on college campuses. If you follow any of this, you will already know where this is going to go. But for those that are not initiated, there are lots of rules that colleges have imposed upon students that seem, in theory, to limit their ability to speak their mind, to really tell people or the professor or just talk about their point of view if it goes against the orthodoxy. And, you know, to some degree, the media on one side is downplaying it, the media on the other side is upplaying it, but it most definitely has happened. As someone who goes onto college campuses very regularly, sometimes you hear about it, and sometimes there are colleges that, you know, people say, oh, I don't don't feel like there's a bias here at all, I don't feel like I can't speak my mind. So, you know, it could be fabricated to some degree, but there are definitely some students who definitely feel like their opinion will not be welcome, especially with some of their professors in particular. But there are other things that these campuses are doing that go beyond just the classroom, which are these things called free speech zones. Quote, the tension is at the heart of the United States politics. Have institutions, including the university system, been so thoroughly captured by anti-American and illiberal ideology that the government must step in to restore viewpoint diversity, free thought, and free expression? To help answer the question, as chairwoman of the Committee of Education and the Workforce, I investigated the state of free speech on college campuses and released the findings in a report. The thrust of the report paints a grim picture. Free speech is all but an illusion for many college students, teachers, and administrators. The report highlights university policies that are fragrantly anti-free speech. Take, for example, the oxymoronically named free speech zones, which limits speech to highly regulated and often out-of-the-way areas on campus. Modern universities purport to 
place a balance or importance on free speech debate and open discussion. But in fact, this freedom is often forced out of the classroom, where instead students are expected to parrot their professors and peers. This policy is clearly unconstitutional, and yet dozens of schools mandate it, end quote. So these free speech zones, you may be thinking, wow, that sounds outrageous, or you may be thinking, well, you know, you don't want to necessarily disturb everybody with your free speech, so it, it kind of makes sense to have a, a particular place where you go and protest. But the question is, if they designate that free speech zone to be out of the way where you can't actually interact with the most amount of students, where you can't actually cause a little bit of, I'm not saying causing trouble in the bad way, like, oh, you're trying to cause trouble, but more that you cause a little bit of an inconvenience and force people to notice you and to break up their daily routine, is that free speech really effective? Is it the university's prerogative to actually limit the spread of the message, especially if they don't agree with it? Now, of course, you know, it goes both ways. It does cut both ways because they have a designated free speech zone and there's a protest of something that the administrators would agree with and that means that those students won't get the recognition that they probably want from their protest or using their free speech. So maybe you could argue that offsets it if it's an equal free, free speech zone. But on principle alone, if you want to go beyond the practical matters of how it's implemented, it is outrageous. Come on, you can protest wherever you want. Now, does that not mean that you're going to have some sort of problem? Maybe if you protest in the middle of the street, you're going to get pulled away for disturbing traffic and things like that. Maybe if you block a building... On campus, and you cross arms or link arms with a whole bunch of people and do a protest where you're not hurting anybody, but you inconvenience them and lock them out of the building or lock people into the building. Maybe there's justification there to say, hey, this is not acceptable. But if you go about your free speech just as a crowd, you're not harassing anybody, you're just standing outside the student center, which is a very busy area, lots of students go in there, then why should that be limited? Why should you be forced to go to the other side of, of campus? You should be able to speak your mind. On private colleges, it is a little bit of a different situation because they're not necessarily always funded by public money. And even if they are receiving some grants or money, it's not the same as the taxpayer's dollar going directly to that university. But with public universities, if a taxpayer in the local area wants to go on there and protest their money's going towards that school. So why would that be outrageous? Why should they be limited to one specific part in order to talk about their point of view and to spread the message that they want to spread to a younger generation? It just, it seems really, really slimy. It seems like it really cuts against the idea that college is a place where ideas are exchanged even if people don't like them. I bet people in the 1920s didn't like socialism, and yet socialism was being talked about in an academic sense at the institutions. And there were probably, there. I take that back, there were attempts from people on the right at that point to completely ban it, and that is outrageous. You can't just ban an ideology from being spoken. So now that people on the left are trying to ban or at least limit certain types of speech and ideas from filtering through the population, 
that should be outrageous too. We have to be intellectually consistent here. And it's ironic that the intellectual institutions are not the ones being intellectually consistent on this matter, trying to limit certain types of speech. And even if you don't agree, even if you don't agree that they're limiting certain types of speech, the fact that they're limiting any type of speech should be what really pisses you off when they have a designated area where you can talk freely and the rest of the campus, you can't do it. Come on, let's be realistic here. So what are the stats or what are the number of students that feel as though their opinion can't be talked about on campus? Quote, two-thirds of college students believe their campus climate prevents individuals from speaking freely on campus. These numbers are chilling. And before we go on, I, I do disbelieve this number a little bit just because I don't believe that two-thirds of college students are on the one side of the political aisle that really feels like their speech wouldn't be welcome. Uh, if you think about it, the institutions tend to be a little bit more liberal, and also there was stats a while ago that I think it was upwards of 50 and maybe the top bar was like 60% of liberals feel okay to express their opinion out in the open and conservatives it's somewhere around like 40% if I'm not mistaken. So considering that college is administrative wise lean liberal and the people that actually go to college lean liberal, I find it really hard to believe that two thirds of college students feel they can't express their opinion but maybe there's something I'm not fully understanding there, but that's the one that they quote, so we'll run with it. Quote, they also reveal the extent to which universities in practice and often in policy have strayed from what the Supreme Court has long established. That's, quote, state colleges and universities are not enclaves immune from the sweep of the First Amendment, yet university culture is directly at odds with free speech principles. Colleges and universities have used taxpayer dollars to subsidize culturally one-sided woke faculty and administrators to allow shout-downs, disinvitations of speakers, and cancellations. A recent survey found that almost two-thirds of college students see no problem, and I repeat, two-thirds of college students see no problem with shouting down speakers on campus and nearly one in five considers it acceptable to use violence to stop certain speech. End quote. This is, this is what scares me. The fact that two-thirds, and I could actually, I could believe this because I could believe that liberals would think it's okay, and I could believe that conservatives have seen it so many times that they think it's okay. That two-thirds of college students thinks it's okay to shout down a speaker in order to try to limit the range of their speech. Now, when I say shout down, when they use shout down, we should be clear. When I'm saying shout down, when I take that as, is actually shouting them down and stopping them from speaking overall, not just trying to speak over them and limit where the speech can go. Because, yeah, if you are protesting and there's a counter-protest, that person can have a bullhorn just like you and try to speak over you. But shouting down a speaker and not letting them speak at all, just doing it for the entire time, that's outrageous. Let that person get their point across. And, yes, I know it does seem a little bit paradoxical what I just mentioned because counter-protesters but also, it's also different than if it's a protest versus counter-protesters or two protests of different sides coming together versus an invited speaker on campus who has been sponsored by a organization, which obviously means a certain segment of the student populace does want to see them. 
and you're just going to shout them down. That shows no respect for the person who was invited, the time that they've taken to come to your university, but also it shows no respect for the people on campus who obviously wanted that person to come, even if it's a small number. The reason that person is there is because they've probably been invited, which means there's somebody in that crowd or somebody at the university who believes that their message needs to be spoken. And the fact that you are so arrogant to believe that you know it is exactly right and that you know this person shouldn't be speaking, that you will shout them down the entire time, that is outrageous. And then nearly one in five consider acceptable to use violence. I mean, 20%. One in five is 20%. 20% of college students think it's okay to use violence. That's just, no. The answer to speech is never violence. Words may hurt your feelings, but guess what's going to break your bones? Those sticks and stones that you're going to throw at the person or the club that you're going to take to them because apparently violence is okay. That is outrageous. We cannot let speech be viewed as a form of violence because in my mind, the only way that you can equate it being okay to use violence to limit speech is seeing speech as violence and therefore... You can do it a quick little math equation that's, ah, well, their violence is being responded to with my violence. No, that's not okay. That's outrageous. And the fact that there are people in colleges now that will go out into the real world and expect that to be the case, oh, it, it makes me so sad it, because how are they going to interact with the real world? They're going to get told they look ugly by someone who's having a bad day who just wants to be nasty, and then they're going to punch them, and then they will probably get arrested because that's not okay. So it's just sad to see where our university system is going. And honestly, I don't like the author's solution either. The author's like, ah, yes, 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 here's what we'll have to do. We'll have the government ensure this. No! Having the government overreach into the college system and mandate certain policies or limit what the college can restrict while maybe in theory you like it because they're going to benefit your side, guess what? The next time there's a different administration in there or a person with a different ideology, they'll do the exact same thing. Government, get your hands out of there. If anything, the only thing you should be doing, and even then I hesitate to say it, but the only thing that makes sense without the government directly going in and proposing enforcing policies is to say if you do not meet certain guidelines if you do not hit these certain criteria we will actually limit the amount of funding that goes towards you even that scares me because then you could have somebody on the opposite ideological side that says oh well we're gonna make new criteria that you have to hit in order to get there so even then it it does make me a little bit queasy in an ideal world it will just be the marketplace that wins out students will realize hey i don't want to go to a place where my opinions can't be heard the colleges that offer more free speech oriented classes or a free speech oriented um what's the word i'm looking for here perspective on issues or on debating they'll actually win out college students who want those sort of values exhibited in the place that they go but, you know, I don't know if that is solely possible nowadays just because such large universities have a hold on parents who want their kids to go there. They are such storied institutions that they have a reputation that students want to leverage in order to get a better job when they get out. So we'll see about that one. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if the solution 
is going to be the free market, but I can tell you now it's definitely not going to be the government coming in and mandating certain policies because that's just not going to end well. If you set that precedent, it will be used against you, and that is always the case in politics. When you use power to your advantage and it hasn't been done before, when you are the one to break the glass ceiling, well, guess what? The other side is just going to try to one-up you. It's like you and your cousin playing whose hand is on top, and you just keep going, and it never, ever ends. All right, let's jump to our second article that comes from HuffPost. These HBCUs have been massively underfunded for 30 years. Now, when I first read this story, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, I have a HBCU that's literally maybe a 15-minute walk from my place, five-minute drive, and when I was on campus there, I... I was informed that, yes, they were underfunded, but I didn't realize that this was a completely systemic thing when I was reading about it. I didn't realize it would be going on for 30 years. I, you know, I got a little brief taste of the students saying this, but I, I didn't have a, a deeper understanding of what was going on. And this article tries to offer it. And there are some places where I would like to push back, but there are other places where I, I kind of do agree. Quote, according to the letters from Education Secretary Miguel Cardona and Agricultural Secretary Thomas Vislask, land-grant HBCUs in 16 states were shortchanged more than $13 billion over the last 30-plus years. These HBCUs include Alabama A&M University, North Carolina AT State University, Virginia State University, and Tennessee State University, among others. The letters address how much funding land-grant HBCUs in each of these states would have received in the last three decades if states' funding per student matched the mandate of the Morals Act, a pair of late 1800s laws that established land-grant universities. Tennessee and North Carolina topped this list, with the gap in funding swelling to over $2 billion apiece. And how do you expect students to manage when they can't necessarily have all of... Okay, so let me put it this way. If you're going to have a public university system, which I don't know if I totally agree with on principle alone, but that is the reality in the practical matter is we have one. So if we're going to have one and you're going to underfund a university, you're not going to provide them the resources to allow these students to flourish, to be able to hire the best teachers, to get the leases or agreements to have the most up-to-date books in the library, or even just the most up-to-date software in order to learn. I know that my college personally did an online program for uh, the training in my Spanish class. Now, of course, we as students had to buy the book and we had to pay for the service, but in order to host that service, in order to actually have our specific class set up in that online service, the teacher in the school had to pay a certain fee in order to get that up and running. So if some of these services, which could actually really benefit students, which I would say the the service I'm talking about right now actually didn't benefit us because we all just kind of, you know, half half went through it and didn't take it seriously. But there are serious online programs that are actually very, very helpful to students. And if you limit the amount of these that students can have access to or the type of facilities that students can have, if the dormitory is old and craggy, guess what? That's not going to inspire students to love the place that they are. If the AC system or the HVAC system is 
terrible. It's, it hasn't been repaired because there's underfunding. Guess what? That could be a health crisis or a health problem for your students. Or even just think about the dining services. How can these colleges, which are trying to appeal, these HBCUs are trying to appeal to a very certain segment of the population, how can they appeal to those students without proper dining services or the resources in order to make it better for all the students that go there. At this point, they could just be living off their legacy. Oh, yes, we're an HBCU. Well, that's great, but that's not going to get you everywhere. Why would a student who has a 4.0 GPA, who's of a minority or who's black and wants to go to you know a good school and he has his pick of the lot and you know, Kentucky State, the one giant appeal is it's a HBCU, you know, he can be a leader there, he can come out on top, he can make a big difference in that community, or he could go to the place with better prospects and better funding, like, you know, UK, or something like that. So, <laughs> you can't just live off your reputation as an HBCU, and when they have been slighted out of money, which is what these letters are arguing... How are they able or how can they try to entice new students in order to build up a better reputation for graduating people and getting them into great career paths or having really influential alumni? It be, it's not necessarily a downward spiral because a lot of HBCUs have been on the rise and they've done great things over the last 30 plus years. But you could see how it could turn into a death spiral when, uh, well, we're not graduating as many high-level engineers anymore, so the state's going to say, oh, well, we have to limit your funding. Well, you limit the funding, then you can't attract more people who might want to go into that high-level engineering program, so on and so forth. So what is it going to look like post-affirmative action? Quote, adding to the inequity, these letters come on the heels of the Supreme Court's decision to strike down race-conscious college admissions, an action many of us know will have a dire impact on higher education. A little context on the Morelli Acts and how they led to land-grant HBCUs. As the National Archives explains, the first Morelli Act went into effect in 1862 during the Civil War, granting 30 acres of stolen tribal land for every senator and representative in a given state to be allocated to public lands. As states could sell a portion of this public land to fund the creation of of a public post-secondary education or use it to extend an existing one. These institutions were meant to prioritize education and research on agricultural science, military science, engineering, and they received and continue to receive federal and state funding through additional measures, end quote. And this is actually something that I really did enjoy hearing, which is they are focused on more, I don't want to say not like, blue-collar stuff, because that seems a little bit demeaning, but they focus on things that are a little bit more STEM, a little bit more hands-on, the potential to benefit a, a community. They're not necessarily like liberal arts colleges. They're not necessarily high-minded things. These are professions. These are degrees that are going to help you tangibly affect your society build up your local community, and help everybody who is around you versus like philosophy. Philosophy is great. Don't get me wrong. But a philosopher has a few different paths. Maybe be a great author. Maybe be a public speaker. Maybe be a teacher. 
But a person who goes to an agricultural school is going to be able to increase crop yield. They're going to be able to help their local farmers maybe understand the mechanics of growing uh, a certain product better or a new, you know, a new, if we have to shift our economy and suddenly yams are all the stuff and for some reason we can grow yams more efficiently, then they may be able to help these farmers adjust to the new economy or new demand for yams. These are all really practical, really helpful things that can directly impact their community and the larger society as a whole. And this is something that I was really happy to hear about and also kind of sad that these sort of programs aren't necessarily getting the funding that they deserve. Uh, I don't necessarily think that the mentioning of the race-conscious college admissions was necessary here. I understand why the author did it, because they're trying to point to a structural problem in underfunding of HBCUs and then saying, oh, well, this is just more you know, structural discrimination on the part of our government. I understand why they put it in there. I just didn't think it was necessary. They could have just stuck to the, the core premise and it would have been just fine. So that's what's going on with HBCUs. And like I said, very sad to see they are underfunded and they have lots of core programs that are really, really beneficial to our society as a whole. Lots of engineers in different STEM fields are going to be the future generation that will lead us forward, especially in an age where we're going to have to adapt to new climates. That's why an agricultural major will be extremely important going into the future here. But you know what? What can I say besides they're just getting screwed out of it? And maybe there should be a reexamination, which is exactly what these letters were doing from the Biden administration. So we'll see where they go with this one. We'll see how they try to remedy it. And I'll be interested to see if it's a solution that will actually placate everybody. All right, so let's go to our last article that comes from Daily Wire. Democratic mayor proposes government-owned grocery store for racial justice. So if you didn't hear, the new mayor of Chicago is saying, hey, 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 all these big box stores, we're talking Walmart, Whole Foods, all these different grocery stores, they are leaving these communities that are underserved, and now they don't have a grocer that or a grocery store that is within easy access of them. So you know what we're going to do for them? We are going to start a public grocery store. And you know, I don't love it in principle, but the sentiment is nice. These people are underserved. They can't get their groceries easily. So the mayor's trying to step up and solve the problem. But is he going about it the right way? way. So here are his reasons that, or sorry, here are the reasons that these stores pulled out and why this store is needed. Quote, Chicago's Democratic mayor has announced a partnership with a far-left nonprofit to advance his proposal of government-owned grocery store, which he argues is needed for the sake of racial justice. Mayor Brandon Johnson said in a press release this month that the city-owned grocery store, which would be the largest of its kind in the United States, is needed to address the exit of corporate grocery stores and promote food equity. Food access and security linked directly to environmental and racial justice. Johnson's office said in a press release, adding that 37% of black residents and 29% of Latinx residents are food insecure, compared to 19% of overall residents. And the reason that these big companies are leaving is because 
these stores have actually been operating at a loss for a long time, almost their entire existence, especially the Walmart in the area. That's the one that's quoted with a statement from the, I believe it's the owner, or sorry, the operator of Walmart currently. And the Daily Wire tries to you know, bring up the fact that crime and violent crime have gone up in the area, so that could be a correlation as to why they're losing even more money this coming year, uh, or sorry, this previous year. So maybe that has something to do with it. It probably does have a lot to do with it. If you can't guarantee that there's not going to be a shooting outside your store or that there won't be a shooting around the area of your store, therefore people will be hesitant to come out and shop there, then it's going to be hard to make that extra money that you're going to need to make it profitable again. And then not to mention the fact that, guess what? If there's a you know crime-ridden neighborhood and people are having a hard time surviving, then they're probably going to be more desperate and they may actually steal from your store. So the, all of these factors is what Daily Wire is trying to link to the idea as to why these big stores left. And that's what the mayor brings up. Like, yeah, these guys are leaving. They're going out. And guess what? It's only going to exacerbate the problem of these people being food insecure. So we're going to make a public grocery store. And then his director of policy said, yeah, yeah, and guess what? We're not going to use any taxpayer funds. It, it, we're not going to use taxes. Well, you may not use local taxes, but they're saying that they're going to use state and federal funds, and any state fund or federal fund, the federal government doesn't really have money. They have money that they print, but sure, I, I guess you could say that's their money, but in real terms, it's actually your money. It's your money that is taken back from you, that is taken back out of the system through taxes. So any state funding and government funding is using taxes to do it. Now, they're going to argue, well, no, no, no. What we mean is we're not using any local residents' taxes in order to do this. But, you know, it's a little bit tricky because people in Chicago, guess what? They still pay taxes to the state, don't they? They still pay federal taxes, don't they? So we'll see how this one plans out. A lot of people, they're arguing that this is, you know, like central planning. It's going down the road of basically controlling different means of the existence of the citizens. And I don't think it's quite that far yet, but we'll see how they actually implement it. And maybe they might limit certain people to a certain amount of goods because they have to ration it for another part of the population that's more food insecure. If they start doing that, then you're going to see lots of protests and you know lots of hatred come in the way of the Chicago mayor for deciding or being the ultimate authority and having to decide which groups get food and which ones don't. And guess what? You're never going to make anybody, or sorry, you're not going to make everybody happy. All right, let's jump to our final story. It's our daily delight that comes from My Modern Met. Llama is brought to a wedding dressed as a groomsman and steals the show. So, you know, everybody, they want their wedding to be special. But one couple got a little bit more than they bargained for. Quote, when planning a wedding, selecting the guest is one of the main things a couple must get done. But sometimes even the most thorough planning can't foresee whether one of its attendees may steal the spotlight at the party, especially if said guest happens to be a fluffy llama. End quote. And guess what? He was even dressed to impress just like 
the headline told you. Quote, recently a llama named Jay joined a wedding in upstate New York in its uniquely designed tuxedo made him look less like a cute animal and more like a dapper groomsman, end quote. If you want to see any of the cute photos from this wedding and this article, or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find all of them. And also down there, you can find the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.